Welcome one and all to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. As I hope you know, if you follow along with us, every week we read through the sermons of Charles Haddon Spurgeon and zero in on one particular sermon, our featured sermon for the week. This week we've broken into volume 9 of the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit and our featured sermon is 490 as we read from 486 through to 492. If you want to follow along, please join us by looking on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon or go to mediagratii.org slash podcasts and sign up to a weekly newsletter where you'll get the sermons for the week and the featured sermon, including a PDF. Media Gratii uh, kindly sponsor and distribute this podcast. So, gracious renewal. The text on this occasion is Psalm 51 and verse 10. Renew a right spirit within me. It was preached on January the 25th, 1863, about a week after the annual general meeting of the church at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Spurgeon has enjoyed that meeting. A solemnly joyful sight, he says, to meet together as a loving family, the encouraging kind of sight where you see a great host dwelling together in unity. And he says, so I'm, I'm responding to that. Uh, I, I want to encourage the uttered consent of a multitude of persons to the will and law of Christ, so that even if that's not a, a formal renewing of one's covenant, Yet nevertheless, there's this sense in which the hearts of God's people are drawing together. And so he says there are many occasions when you might very rightly renew your covenant with God. He offers some suggestions. After recovery from sickness, after a particularly uh, extraordinary deliverance, when after sin you have repented and been restored, when you enjoy particular prosperity, or when you're going through certain seasons of life, uh, the, the, the marker points, if you like, and he says, arriving at manhood, the birth of children, the death of friends, the anniversaries of our birth, going from strength to grey hairs. These are the kinds of seasons in which we might uh, go on surveying our state before God and determining to be the Lord's forever. He's not binding us to that. He says we don't necessarily imitate the precision of those who would do it uh, every day or every in a month or every day in a year, but it is good for us to renew our vows unto him. But, and here's a really interesting and very balanced insight. He says that the text he's dealing with does not deal with renewing our vows before God, or proclaiming anew in the courts of the Lord's house our surrender to him. No, it goes deeper than all this. Renew a right spirit within me. In other words, this is not a believer saying, I will renew a right spirit within myself, but rather an earnest plea to God that he will renew a right spirit within us. And if he does that, then our consecration will be renewed. If the fountain be filled, then the streams must flow. And I think that's going to help us as we work our way through this sermon, because it would be easy to turn uh, that into a bit of a rod with which to beat us. 
I must renew a right spirit within myself. Spurgeon points us outward to the God of all grace to work these things in us, but he urges us to do it and gives us all good reasons to do it and to pursue it. So there's this beautiful blend between an appreciation of divine grace and of human desire at this point. I want not so much to preach then, he says, as to lead you now to the footstool of divine mercy in humble, earnest entreaty that the Lord may renew within you a constant spirit and invigorate the life of your piety. If God has given you desires for this, says Spurgeon, act upon them in the anticipation that God will meet your desires. So he's going to reason with us why this is such a significant and important thing. First of all, a cogent motive, a pressing and uh, thoughtful motive for the renewal of our graces, uh, logical and convincing, uh, is to be found in the absolute necessity for it if we would persevere. There's only one way that we, as sinful creatures brought to God, are going to be able to go on in our faith. And that is if God, by his mercy, is renewing a right spirit within us. All created things need this, says Spurgeon. God alone is self-existent. He alone is the great I am. Everyone else relies upon him in order that they might press on. If your piety can live without God, it's not of divine creating, says the preacher. It lives only in your fancy. It is but a dream, for if God had begotten it, it would wait upon him as the flowers wait for the dew. And he says, that's especially applicable then to those creatures of God which are endowed with life. Those without life need preserving, but the truth is not so clearly seen in their case as in living objects. If you have life, you need that life sustained and renewed. What's the meaning, he asks, of renewing your strength like the eagles? What's the meaning of God restoring our soul if we don't need full often, very often, the times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord? But he says, we don't need to go so far. In your own inner consciousness, my brother Christian, you're aware that your piety requires constant renovation. What downward tendencies the thoughtful must perceive in themselves. So here's our Christian experience emphasizing for us without any external argumentation, as it were, that we know and feel that we need renewing, how quickly we decline, how fast we waste away. He says, if you don't see that for yourself, then you may be made to see it, and that terribly, by some surprising sin. This prayer was forced out of David by his adultery with Bathsheba and his bloody murder of Uriah. So you, yes, you, my brother, a saint before the Lord, yes, you, preacher, you may be made to know it by being suddenly overtaken in a fault to your own shame forever. It may be that us being shaken, us stumbling, is the occasion by which we are obliged to call out what perhaps we'd lost sight of before, that we need God to renew this steadfast spirit, this right spirit within us. And so he goes on, that unconscious backsliding from God, the Perhaps the, the slowness and the dullness that can come upon us either at certain seasons or with the, the passing of time. 
He says, I'm not, I'm not speaking in any severity against God's saints, but I do believe that this is the sin in the church of God at the present moment, that most of us have grey hairs here and there and do not know it. We walk so carelessly before God. We do not make such heart work of religion as we should. Indifference I find to be my own temptation. I do not know that I am assaulted with certain other sins which prevail over other men, but this I find to be harder to meet than even a temptation to lust or covetousness, this indifference. As I talk with brothers, as I engage with other Christians, at least where I am at this present time, I think a measure of indifference, uh, lethargy, inertia is is to some extent, again, crippling the church. I think that the uh, the reaction to COVID-19 has something to do with that. I think some of what's happened societally and ecclesiastically has perhaps stripped us of some energy and vigour. And so this is a good thing for us to be praying now. If the crown is fallen from our head because we've sinned, he says, let us seek the Lord with deep humiliation of soul. If the joy of our heart has ceased, if our dance is turned into mourning, let us return unto him from whom we have erred and renew our mar- marriage covenant. Then he comes on to the brief but very forcible prayer Pray it, he says, because of our own powerlessness to renew our own spirits. He says, if the child of God, even when in a healthy state, needs to cry for the divine spirit, how much more when he's fallen under spiritual decays or has grievously backslidden does he need the divine hand of the mighty carpenter to set him right? The Christian, when his heart is out of order, has no power to put himself right again without the blessed spirit. This is true in the very beginning, conversion. It is to to go directly opposite to our fallen nature. There must be this exercise of divine power, this reaching out, this working in by God and by his spirit to turn us from darkness to light and from death to life. And he says, in the renewal of your spirits, every grace is wanted, is required, that was needed for our first conversion. The same life that first came to us is the life that we now want to be maintained and increased. The same operations we want in increasing and ongoing measure. Let not the doctrine then that you, unaided, can do nothing, make you sleep, but let it be a goad in your side to drive you with an awful earnestness to the great fountain from which all streams must flow to satisfy your wants. And plead it, plead it as though you pleaded for your very life, as though you pleaded for your only son. Lord, now renew a right spirit within me. So he's saying then that uh, not that the fact that this is a gracious operation, a sovereign blessing, should make us lazy, but rather that should drive us to the throne of grace, to plead with God for these mercies. The man who prays to God to do a thing must use the means through which God works. He is a hypocrite who asks the Lord to visit him and then nails up his door, or asks for life and then refuses to eat. God will use his particular means to this particular end, Continue in prayer, live much upon the word of God, attend constantly a soul-satisfying ministry, kill the lusts that have driven your Lord from you, be careful to watch over your uh, the future uprisings of sin, otherwise your prayer cannot be sincere. 
So here again is this thoughtful and careful understanding of how all of these things hold together. You cannot just pray to God to renew a right spirit within you and then go on living a careless or indulgent life. You must be pleading with God and pursuing that by which God will bring about the answer to these prayers. But if we change our note, he says, a third point, if I might stir any of you up, it would be a privilege to me, he says, to come afresh to the fountain filled with blood, to renew again your entire surrender and resignation of yourselves. Now to do that, I want you to consider the blessed results which are sure to follow if the Lord shall renew your spirit. What joy you will experience. That's his first point. It'll be joyful for you. Yes, religion never was designed to make our pleasures less. It's the renewal of a brotherly covenant, as Jonathan and David did. It's the renewal of a marriage covenant. It's taking you back to the first things. It's taking you back to the original moments. It's taking you back. It's back to that refreshing and restoring. It's giving you a taste over again of what you already have received. And besides having an abundance of joy in those early days of your espousals to Christ, how full of heavenly life our graces were, how real everything appeared to our faith at the first. Perhaps you know that as a Christian. You can go back either to your, your first few weeks or months after you were converted or perhaps to some particularly blessed seasons in your life, and you go, ah, now that's when I was walking closely with God. That's when Christ was very real to me. That's when I really entered into the blessings of salvation. That's when uh, every song, he says, was really a psalm. And when there was prayer, oh, I followed every word. There's a, an intensity to it. There's a vigor to it. And he says, I want that again. How active all our graces were. There was no doubts. Faith was strong. There was no lukewarmness. Again, this whole-souled vigor. It is even so, he says, with young Christians. They'll often do many rash things just because they have an excess of vivacity, like a lamb just bouncing around in the field. They have such a full tide of love and zeal that they do not know how to put it into action. Young life demands exercise. Oh, that some of you who are old in years and others of you upon whose graces there are signs of decay could but recover some of this juvenile effervescence. We think of that perhaps with regard to our physical well-being. How many of us look back on maybe our childhood or our teens or our 20s and we say, oh, if only I had some of that vigour, if only I had some of that strength, if only I had some of that a bubbling energy. Well, how much more, asks Spurgeon, with regard to our relationship to God in Christ? Was there no youthful vigour? Was there no juvenile effervescence by which we stir were stirred up to seek the Lord? And don't we want more like that again? But he says, practical ends too. Your usefulness to others. When your spirit is renewed, whether you're a Sunday school teacher or a tract distributor or a preacher or in a family with your own children, you want more grace in your hearts if you're going to be more influential with men. And only God can do that for you. Or perhaps you came to church complaining of the world and its trials. How little weight the sorrows of this life will have in the scale, he says, if balanced against the joy of your heart when the Lord renews your spirit. 
And so he says, let me beseech you by your love to your own souls, by your care to grow in grace, by your anxiety to prosper in the Lord's way, by your interest in the welfare welfare of others, pray with me this prayer, renew a right spirit within me. And now a fourth argument, one other only where many might be given. Do not gospel obligations irresistibly constrain us by to by the means of this our prayer, to renew our covenant with God. Now he says, I'm not urging legal motives upon you, but gospel motives. And he's been laboring to do this throughout. Remember, the point of this sermon is not to get you to stir yourselves up, except to come to God that you may be stirred up by him. You're being stirred up to ask to be stirred up. Did I do did you do right, he asks, in giving your soul to Christ at first? Was that a mistake? Was it just some childish excitement? Were you misled by some fanatical speech? He says, not at all. Though there may be a thousand things you repent of, this one thing, giving yourself to God, is a subject of perpetual congratulation with you. So then, if it was well to do it then, do it now. If you would not make out yourself to have been a fool and your faith to have been a lie, if you would not before the eyes of men and of angels declare that the whole thing is a farce, this day, even this day, let us go into Gilgal and there let us renew the kingdom before the Lord. Spurgeon's asking us, if it was right then, isn't it right now? If coming to God for the first time was so wise and blessed and joyful, isn't it wise and blessed and joyful to come again to him now? If everything about God drew you in then, is there anything that does not draw you in now? If all your sense of need pulled you to Christ then, is there any lack of need now to go to him once more and to ask him to renew a right spirit within you? I think it's important perhaps to think that through for ourselves. What is it we're afraid of? What do we think the price we'll have to pay might be? What will be the cost? Perhaps we're we're too proud. Perhaps we become lazy. Perhaps we don't want to have to be stirred up. Is there a reason why we wouldn't pray this prayer? Was it right when we first came? Then it's right again today. Perhaps this then is the occasion for some real soul searching with us. Why would I fear to pray this prayer? Why would I back off from this? Is there any resentment? Is there any antagonism? Is there any distance in my soul that would make this unpalatable to me? And then again, he says, another argument when you think of the gospel obligations, how often Jesus renewed his covenant with his people. It was not enough, he says, to have spoken it in the ear of Adam and whispered it to the heart of Eve. Enoch must testify. Abraham must understand. Noah must grasp it when floating securely in the ark. There must be a renewed revelation to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, to Joshua. Symbols of renewed covenant must be seen in the tabernacle and in the temple. Each day, week, month, year, each jubilee gives some fresh form of Christ setting his seal anew to the love which he bore to his people and his purpose to redeem his church by blood. Spurgeon's point here is that from the very beginning, perhaps you know that in Genesis chapter 3, that that first promise, sometimes called the proto-evangel, the first gospel, 
that uh, God would send into the world one who would crush the head of the serpent, even though his heel would be crushed. This seed of the woman who would act on behalf of his people. Spurgeon says God didn't say that and then walk away and leave us only with that. No, again and again, and with increasing clarity and beauty, God's covenant with mankind, that great covenant of grace, is made clearer and clearer. God goes on speaking concerning his willingness to save. The Lord Christ goes on making plain and renewing his covenant with his people. And if God in Christ has so often testified of his readiness to bless us, should we not as often testify of our readiness to be blessed by him? Renew in me a right spirit. And then, moreover, he has renewed his covenant with you. Come, he says, I want you to look back at your old diaries. I want you to to think about your past life, not saying you have to keep a journal or a, a diary of some kind. But the point is, hasn't Christ renewed his covenant with some of us many times? Haven't there been some particularly joyous seasons? Haven't there been some moments of particular deliverance? Haven't there been some occasions of holy retirement or, or Christ drawing near in the busyness of life? And he's come with sweet, reassuring words that our soul, which was tired of this world, have been, been ready to receive. He's stayed us with flagons. He's supported us with good things. He's comforted us. He's made us overwhelmed by his love. He's gone on showing mercy and goodness toward us. And Spurgeon draws on that language of the Song of Solomon to communicate a sense of how Christ draws near to bless his people. And he says, I want to talk to you again, yet further. And I'm not going to waste wait any longer about this. So it's a very wide field. He says, every covenant transaction binds us to it. So he's, again, heaping up these arguments, these pleadings, uh, gospel obligations, everything that God is in himself and in his Christ toward us, enjoins us, draws out our renewings of our desires for him. You believe in the doctrine of election. It means that God has chosen you. So acknowledge it anew by choosing his way and word. You believe in a special and efficacious redemption. Well then, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. You believe in effectual calling. So recognize your distinction and separation as a sacred people set apart by God. You believe this is perpetual for you'll persevere to the end. If you're going to be God's forever, be God's today. You're looking for a, he for a heaven from which selfishness shall be banished. A heaven where glory shall consist in being wholly absorbed in Christ. Well then, that's all you're asking for today, that your soul should be bound as with cords that cannot be snapped to the altar of your God. So here he is now urging these things upon us. And then just a few closing applications, backsliders, you pray it. If you have drifted far from God, if you've been indulging any kind of sin consistently and unrepentantly, then Ask God to renew a constant spirit within you, a right spirit within you. 
the church may have had to put you out because of your sin, referring to that dreadful sentence of excommunication. But he's saying if there's an opportunity now, if there's any desire in your soul toward God, come with this plea and prayer. Your father waits to meet you. The church longs for you. Your brother desire to see your face again. And then Christians who haven't backslidden, perhaps those who are, are older in service, you're the ones who today need to ask God that you might have renewed a right spirit within you. God has kept you thus far. Christ has sustained you until life's latest hour. Then ask him to draw near to you again. You strong men and fathers, you're struggling with the world. You're out in the battle. What do you need? You need God to draw near to you and strengthen your soul. So come to him, plead with him, renew your vows and seek his strength. Then you you young men and maidens, the little ones in God's Israel, you say it too. Renew your most recent dedication. And then those who are like Samuels brought to God's house, right down to the youngest children. You give yourselves anew to the Lord so that the the youthful voices of the children, unbroken as yet to the deeper bass which the world's care is sure to give you by and by, sing your high-pitched trebles to the Lord. I am your servant and the son of your handmaiden. You have loosed my bonds. And so he concludes, Let us then renew our vows through his renewing a right spirit within us. It is a a masterful pastoral treatment of this topic. The uh, the text itself is uh, handled uh, reasonably thoughtfully. He, he doesn't particularly expound it a great deal. There's a simplicity in the text as it is that enables us just to, to take it. He <clears throat> What's most important, I think, is the way that he doesn't load unrighteously any burden upon the saints. What he does, rather, is cast that burden upon the Lord. But he urges God's people to come with that eager expectation that God, when we call upon him, when when we open our mouths, that he will fill them. So I hope that rather than perhaps saying, right, this is all in me, I've got to sort myself out, I've got to set myself up, I've got to get my act together, I've got to get moving, I've got things I need to do, I I, I need to pull myself up by my bootstraps, or whatever it may be. No, you need to ask God to strengthen you. You need to ask God to renew a right spirit within you. You need to ask God to establish you in steadfastness. You will not persevere without it. If he blesses you in answer to this prayer, there'll be uh, such uh, joy and such mercy, such uh, strength and such vigor, so that you might sometimes feel as if you've been converted all over again. And then you'll be more joyful and more useful and less bitter. And then all God's work in you and toward you, all God's dealings with you in grace, All of them call upon you to come back again to him and to ask that what he has done and what he's determined to go on doing, he might do in us and for us now. It's not the beginning of the year, as it was when Spurgeon preached this. We may not be looking back upon a happy church members meeting and saying, well, uh, that's a a wonderful point at which to, to make this plea, this prayer. But go back to his first points. Recovery from sickness, 
particular deliverance, restoration from sin, distinct moments of prosperity, certain seasons in life? Is there a one of us who can say that now is not the right time, now is not the right occasion for us to come and plead with the Lord that he would renew a right spirit within us? And so I trust that we will do that and that perhaps as we come back, if you will, next week to listen again to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon, that you will find that you do so with greater zeal, greater vigour and greater appetite than you have done before. Next week, it's uh, Sermons 493 to 499. And our featured sermon is 498. The title of that, The Gladness of the Man of Sorrows. I hope the title itself whets your appetite and that you'll come back and listen in again as we consider Christ as this servant of the Lord sets him forth for our minds, our heart, our affections and our wills. Thank you and take care. God bless. This is From the Heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. I hope that today's podcast has been a blessing to your soul. If you would like to share that blessing with others, please leave us a review on your favourite podcast app, especially if you live outside the United States. It makes a genuine difference. Thanks very much for listening.